Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Mistress in Black by Rosemary Timperley The school was deathly quiet and seemed to be deserted. Nervously, I approached it from the road, followed a path round the side of the building, and came to the main entrance. I tried the door, but it was locked, so I rang the bell. Footsteps approached, the door opened, a tall, pleasant-faced man with a grey moustache stood there. Good morning, I said. I'm uh, Miss Anderson. I have an appointment with the headmistress at ten o'clock. Oh, yes, come in, miss. I'm the caretaker. He stood aside for me to pass and closed the door again. If you wait here, I'll see if Miss Leonard is ready for you. He went along the corridor in front of me, turned to the right, and vanished. With my back to the front door, I looked round the hall. On the wall to my left was a green baize notice board with a few notices neatly arranged and secured with drawing pins. I wondered whether that board would still be so tidy when their vacation was over and the children were back. Past the notice board were swing doors opening onto an empty gymnasium, its equipment idle, its floor shining with polish. The paintwork was fresh and the place looked as if it had just been decorated. To my right were a number of other doors, closed and mysterious. For everything in an unfamiliar building seems mysterious. And ahead of me, to the left of the corridor and alongside it, was a flight of stairs leading upwards. My nervousness increased. Interviews always panicked me, and I really needed this job. Trembling a little, I waited. The silence itself seemed to make a noise in my ears. I listened for the caretaker's returning footsteps. Suddenly a woman appeared at the top of the stairs and began to descend. She startled me as she had made no sound in her approach, and I was reminded of one of my previous headmistresses, whose habit of wearing soft-soled shoes had given her an uncanny ability to turn up silently when she was least expected. This woman on the stairs was pale, dark, very thin, and wearing a black dress unrelieved by any sort of ornament. Unsmiling, she looked at me with beautiful, but very unhappy, dark eyes. Miss Leonard, I said. She didn't reply or even pause, merely moved towards the doors of the gymnasium. At the same time I heard the caretaker's returning footsteps and turned to see him re-enter the corridor. This way, dear, he called. Miss Leonard will see you now. As I went towards him, I thought I smelled something burning, so hesitated. Again, I looked through the glass at the top half of the gymnasium doors. The woman in black was out of sight. What's the matter? The caretaker came up to me. Feeling nervous? Yes, I am. But it's not that. I, I thought I smelled burning. He looked at me sharply. No, not now, he said. That's all over, and I should know. But I've got a bonfire going in the grounds. Maybe the smoke's blowing this way. That'll be it. Anyway, uh, I can't smell it any more. Was that Miss Leonard I saw a second ago? Where? he asked. On the stairs. Uh, then she went into the gymnasium. You're in a proper state of nerves, you are, he said, as I followed him along the corridor. There's no one in the building today except you, me, and Miss Leonard, and she's in her office waiting for you. Coming on the staff, are you? I hope so. I've applied for the job of English teacher. Good luck, then, he said. We stopped outside a door. 
This is Miss Leonard's room, miss. He knocked on the door, a voice called, Come in, and I went into the headmistress's room. Miss Leonard was at her desk, the window behind her. She rose immediately, a plump yet a dignified figure with neat white hair and a pink suit which heightened the colour in her cheeks. She was utterly unlike the woman in black. She smiled. Do come right in and sit down, Miss Anderson. I'm glad to see you. It's not easy to find staff at a moment's notice at the end of the autumn term. It's not easy to find a job at this time either, I said. Most schools are fixed up for the whole of the school year. We were, too. Then suddenly there was a vacancy. You're twenty-five. You have a B.A. degree in English and two years teaching experience. She was looking at my letter of application which lay on her desk. That's right, Miss Leonard. You haven't been teaching for the past twelve months. May I ask why? My mother and I went to live in Rome with my sister and her husband, who's Italian. Mother was ill and she wanted to see my sister again before, well, mother's dead now, so I decided to come back to England. And do you know anything about this school? No, I simply answered your advertisement. I'm glad you did. She picked up a folder of papers and handed it to me. In here I've enclosed your timetable for next term and details of syllabus and set books, so you can do your homework before you arrive. You mean I've got the job? Yes, why not? That's marvellous. Thank you. We talked for a while. Then, as she took me back to the main door, she said, You'll find the rest of the staff very nice and friendly. I think I've seen one of them already, I said. Really? Which one? I, I don't know. It was just that she came down the stairs while I was waiting in the hall. She was wearing a black dress. Miss Leonard said casually, Staff do come back during the vacation sometimes to collect forgotten property or whatever. Goodbye for the present, Miss Anderson. When you arrive on the first day of term, come to my office and I'll show you the staff room, then take you to your first class. And the interview was over. Christmas passed. January began. Diligently, I studied my folder of information, and then, on the night before the first day of term, snow fell. My lodgings were a train journey away from the school, and on the very morning when I wanted to be punctual, my train stuck. Ice on the points. By the time I reached the school, I was late and distraught. Added to this, the school itself looked different under snow. I couldn't even find the path to the main door. I took a wrong path, lost myself wandering round the building, then peered through a classroom window. Lights were on inside. About thirty-five little girls in white blouses and dark tunics were sitting at their desks and listening to the teacher. The teacher was the dark, thin woman in the black dress whom I had seen before. Fascinated, I stood and gazed. It was like watching a silent play. Myself, in the outside, dark, the actors, in the light, playing their parts. In the front row of the class was a little girl with golden hair falling like bright rain over her shoulders. Next to her was a dark child, her black hair cropped close as a boy's, and next to this one was a child with a mop of red curls. All the pupils were attentive, but this red-haired girl was gazing at the teacher with an expression of adoration. It was touching, yet a little alarming. No human being deserves that much young worship. I retraced my steps along the wrong path in the snow, found the right one, and finally reached the entrance door. It was not locked this time. I let myself in and hurried to Miss Leonard's room. 
Come in, she called in answer to my knock. As I went in, I blurted out, I'm so sorry I'm late. It was my train, the snow. Never mind, Miss Anderson, I guess as much. I'll take you to the staff room. She led me up the stairs from the hall, along a first-floor corridor, into a room. It was an ordinary staff room. Notice board, lockers, tables, hard chairs, easy chairs, electric fire. The light was on, but the room was empty. At least, I thought it was empty at first, then realised that someone was sitting in one of the chairs. I saw her only out of the corner of my eye, and she was in a chair in the far corner of the room, away from the fire. So although I recognised her as the woman in black, I didn't turn to look at her. If I thought anything, it was just that she had a bit of a nerve to leave her class, which I'd seen her teaching a few minutes ago, and come and sit in the staff room. And now she'd been caught out by the entrance of the headmistress. Miss Leonard, however, took no notice of her. She said, This will be your locker, Miss Anderson. The bell will ring any minute now for the end of the first period. Then I'll take you to your first class. It's a double period of English. You'll have seen that from the timetable. Mrs. Gage is looking after them at the moment. She is our biology teacher, and she'll be glad to see you, as by rights these first two periods should be her free ones. That's why the staff room's empty. But the staff room was not empty. There was the woman in black, looking at me seriously, with those beautiful, sad, dark eyes. Mrs. Leonard led the way to my first class. The teacher there looked quickly round as we entered. She was a lively, dark, fairly young woman with eagerly bent shoulders and black-rimmed spectacles. She wore a red sweater and brown skirt. Here we are, Mrs. Gage, said Miss Leonard. Now you'll get your second free period all right. She faced the class. Now, girls, this is Miss Anderson, your new English teacher. Help her as much as you can, won't you? And I, too, stood facing the class. It was the same class which I had seen through the window only fifteen minutes earlier. There was the child with fair hair in the front row and the dark one next to her, and... No. It was different. The child with curly red hair was not there. Her desk was empty, and of course the teacher was different. Miss Leonard and Mrs. Gage left the room. I was on my own with this unfamiliar familiar class. I spent the next forty minutes or so in trying to get to know them, checking on their set books and so on. Then the bell rang for morning break, and I returned to the staff room. The chair where the woman in black had been sitting was empty now, but other chairs were occupied. The staff had gathered for elevenses. I heard someone say, above the noise of the many voices, How does that damn chair get over in the corner like that? Who puts it there? Night cleaners have strange ways, said another voice. Extraordinary about night cleaners, said the first. They work here for years, and so do we. And which of us are the ghosts? We coexist, but never meet. A woman in an overall came in with a tray bearing a pot of coffee and cups and saucers. Mrs. Gage came over to me. Coffee, Miss Anderson? Oh, thank you. How do you like it? Black, uh, no sugar. Same here. She collected coffee for us both. Sorry you missed a free period because of me, I said. My train got held up in the snow. That's all right. Sipping my coffee, I studied the other women around me. Doesn't everyone come here for a coffee at break? I asked Mrs. Gage. Everyone. It's only our elevenses that keep us going. Then where is, well, one of the teachers? She was taking your class, uh, my class, this morning. 
I saw her through the window. Not that class, said Mrs. Gage. I started with them immediately after morning assembly. But it was that class I recognised some of the girls, and the one with red hair wasn't there. Mrs. Gage looked at me sympathetically. You're all upset over being late, aren't you? And maybe you're upset for other reasons, too. I don't blame you. It's not easy to be taking Miss Carey's place. Miss Carey? Who? But as I tried to ask more, the woman in the overall came to collect our dirty cups, and the bell rang for the third period. We all went off to our classes. I still had one more period with the same class I'd taken before, or so I thought, until I reached the room. Then I saw that the teacher's chair was already occupied. The woman in black sat there, and the child with the red hair was in the third desk in the front row. Uh, sorry, I murmured, withdrew again, and stood in the corridor to re-examine my timetable. Surely I hadn't made a mistake. No, I was right. This was my class. So I went back, and the teacher's chair was empty now. So was the third desk in the front row. That was when I began to be afraid, so afraid that a sick shiver travelled down my spine, sweat sprang out on my skin, and I needed all my self-control to face the class and give a lesson. At the end of the lesson, when the bell rang for the next period, I asked the class in general, Where's the girl who sits there? I indicated the third desk in the front row. No one answered. The children became unnaturally quiet and stared at me. Oh, well, I said. Then the fair-haired child said, No one sits there, miss. And the dark child next to her added, That was Joan's desk. But where is Joan? Silence again. Then Mrs. Gage walked in. Hello, Miss Anderson. We seem to be playing box and cox this morning. Do you know which class to go to for last period? Y yes, thank you. I've got my timetable. I hurried away. Busyness is the best panacea for fear, and I was very busy getting to know a different class until the bell rang for lunch. Back to the staff room again, and it was full again, and there was Mrs. Gage kindly taking me under her wing. Miss Leonard asked me to look after you until you found your way around, she said. The staff dining room is on the second floor. Would you like to come up with me? I was glad of the offer. The staff, all female, sat at three long tables in the dining room, and the place was as noisy as a classroom before the teacher arrives. Two overalled women, one of whom I had seen at break, served our meal. Conversation was mostly shop, the besetting sin of female teachers. As the newcomer I kept quiet, but I looked at those women one by one, trying to identify the woman in black. She wasn't there. Unhungry, I did my best with the meat pie and carrots, then when rice pudding and prunes arrived, for teachers have children's diet, I murmured to Mrs. Gage, Who's the member of staff who wears a black dress? She looked round. Uh, no one, as far as I can see. No, she's not here, but I've seen her. Really? But I think everyone's here today. We do go out for lunch sometimes, but when the weather's like this, it's easier to have it on the premises. What was she like? Dark, pale, thin, not very young, with lovely eyes. Wearing a black dress, you said? Yes. Mrs. Gage gave a small, unamused laugh. Sounds like Miss Carey, but you can't possibly have seen her. The one who's left, whose place I've taken. No one could take Joanna's place. And Oh, I didn't mean... Miss Anderson, I'm sorry, I didn't mean anything either. 
She didn't look at me, but she had stopped eating her prunes. Did something bad happen to her? I asked. She tried to burn down the school. The words were whispered, and the noise of voices around us was so loud that I thought I must have misheard. So I said, What? She tried to burn down the school, Mrs. Gage repeated. Others at our table heard her this time. Conversation faded, ceased. Heads turned towards Mrs. Gage. Don't all look at me like that, said Mrs. Gage. I'm only telling Miss Anderson what happened last term. She has a right to know. Leaving her suite unfinished, she pushed back her chair with a scraping noise and left the room. I sat petrified. Murmurs of conversation began again, but no one spoke to me, so I pretended to eat a little more, then rose and left. I found my way back to the staff room. Mrs. Gage, cigarette in hand, was sitting by the electric fire. Sorry about that, she said. Until you asked, I presumed you knew. It was in the newspapers. I've been living in Italy. I only came back just before Christmas. Could you tell me what happened, before the others returned from lunch? Sure, have a fag. Rotten first day for you. She passed me a cigarette and lit it for me. The smell of burning. I've noticed it before. It's only our cigarettes, Miss Anderson, and we'd better get them smoked before the rest of the staff come back. Some of them abhor cigarette smoke. These spinsters. I'm one too. Not really. You're still young. So, you want to know about Joanna Carey? Of course I do. After all, I've seen her. Did she get the sack and now she comes back uninvited or what? My dear child, you can't have seen her. She's dead. Then whom did I see? Mrs. Gage ignored this question. She said, Miss Carey, Joanna, had been a teacher here for twenty years. She was excellent at her job and the kids adored her. Then, about a year ago, she changed. In what way? Not in the way she taught. Her teaching was always brilliant, but in her attitude. After being most understanding and sympathetic with the young, she gradually became more and more cynical, to the point of cruelty. She made it clear to all of us, staff and pupils, that she now hated her job, and only went on doing it because she had to earn a living somehow. But why did this happen? Why? Who knows why anything? But in fact, I do know more about her than most of the staff. Joanna and I were friends before she changed. She often visited my husband and me in the old days. She and I had occasional heart-to-hearts over the washing up, so I learned something of her private life. She was the mistress of a married man for about ten years. That was her private life. Then he ditched her, decided to be a good boy again. When it happened, she told me, and she laughed, and didn't seem to care very much. But it was from that moment that she began to change, grow bitter, disillusioned. The world went stale for her. The salt had lost its savour. She began to take revenge, not against the man, but against everyone else with whom she came into contact. That meant us, staff and kids. She was filled with hate, and hate breeds hate. Even I, who had been her friend, began to avoid her. She was left alone. You said she tried to burn down the school. She did. She failed in that. But while she was trying, she burned herself to death. And one of the children. One of the children? Oh, no! It's true, Miss Anderson. I wouldn't say it if it weren't. 
I, of all people, once so friendly with Joanna, I'd be the last person to admit it if it weren't true. But it happened. What exactly did happen? One Friday evening, towards the end of last term, she came back to school. This is what the police found out when they investigated afterwards. Everyone except Mr. Brown, the caretaker, had gone. She soaked the base of the long curtains in the gymnasium with paraffin and set fire to them. Imagine the flare-up that would make, all those curtains in that big room. Why she didn't get away afterwards, no one knows. Maybe she fainted. Maybe she deliberately let herself be burned, like that Czech student, you know. People do these things, and they're desperate. Mr. Brown saw the flames sent for the fire service, and after they'd come and put out the fire, her body was found among the ashes of the curtains. And the child, you said, Yes, little Joan Hanley, a dear little girl with red curly hair. She adored Joanna. She was found there too, burnt to death among the ashes of the curtains. But how did she come to be there in the first place? Once again, no one knows. She was one of Joanna's worshippers. There were several in the school. Girls' schools are diabolical in this respect. Rather all female wards in hospitals. Unnatural passions are aroused. Joan Hanley would have done anything in the world for Joanna Carey. So did Joanna invite the girl to the party? I don't know, but it looks like it. Didn't the police find out anything about why Joan Hanley was there? They tried. She had told her parents that she was going to the cinema, which she often did on Friday nights. When she didn't come home at her usual time, her parents wondered, and the next thing they knew, the police were on their doorstep, telling them that their daughter had been burned to death at the school. That's all I know, Miss Anderson, all any of us knows. Since it happened, workmen have put the gymnasium to rights. Hence all the fresh paint and the pretty new curtains. These tragedies are happening all the time, all over the world, I know that. But when I think of Joanna in her hatred and bitterness, drawing a child into such a burning... Oh, God! She put her hands over her face. The staff room became deathly quiet, only the two of us there, Mrs. Gage and me, crouching over the electric fire, our cigarettes burning down, the silent snow covering the world outside. God knows why. I suddenly looked behind me. I looked at that chair in the far corner of the room. It was no longer empty. The woman in black sat there. She looked straight at me, with those tragic eyes. Then the staff room door burst open and the other women poured in, filling the quietness with noise, filling the empty chairs with bodies, talking shop, and I thought, no wonder Joanna Carey took a hate against all of this, and yet, to burn a child, along with herself, no, I didn't. The sound came over clearly, loudly, as if it filled the world, yet no one seemed to hear it. It had spoken in my head only. I'll prove it, said the loud voice in my head. Come. Mrs. Gage was leaning back in the chair by the fire. She had lit another cigarette and closed her eyes. She looked tired out, and no wonder. I got up and left the room, that room full of talking women. I walked blindly, yet guided, along the unfamiliar corridors. Outside, in the snow, the children were having snowball battles. They were having a lovely lunch hour. Heaven was outside. Hell was within.
I walked, without knowing why, into the classroom which I had seen through the window, the classroom where I had taught during the second and third periods of the school morning. I walked up to the third desk in the front row. I sat down in that desk, as if I were the little girl, Joan Hanley, who had, day after day, sat down in that desk. I opened the desk lid. There was nothing inside. I looked at the scratchings and carved initials on the top of the desk lid. I found J.H. loves J.C., and over it an unsymmetrical heart pierced by a rather wonky arrow. But I knew already that J.H. had loved J.C. I had seen the child's face through the window only this morning. I had seen what did not exist yet, which did exist. What to do now? My hand, guided by God knows what or whom, put its fingers into the empty inkwell socket. The fingers found a closely folded piece of paper. I unfolded it carefully and read, Dear Mum and Dad, I, I do not love you. I love Miss Carey. Where she goes, I go. I follow her everywhere. Tonight I have followed her to the school. She has gone to the gymnasium. I shall follow her there. Something's going to happen. That is why I'm writing. Whatever she does, I shall do too. Because I love her. I must hurry now to be with her. Funny, really, as she doesn't even know I follow her. I'll put this under my inkwell. I don't expect you'll ever read it, but you never know. Yours sincerely, your daughter, Joan. I didn't know she was there, cried that voice in my head loud with its silence. I did not know she was there. Of course you didn't, I answered aloud, loudly. It's all right. I'll tell them. The classroom door opened and Miss Leonard walked in. Miss Anderson, what on earth are you doing? What on earth was I doing? I was sitting at a dead child's desk, a scrap of paper in my hand, and talking to myself. I, I found something, Miss Leonard. I passed her the letter. She read it. So... That's what happened, she said. Miss Carey didn't take the child there with her at all. The little girl secretly imitated her goddess, even to the point of suicide. Where did you find this letter? In the inkwell socket. I'm surprised it hasn't been found before, maybe by one of the children. No, I cleared that desk myself, removed the inkwell. I didn't think to look underneath it. And the children never touched this desk. I did think of removing it, but... That's too much like giving in to superstition. What made you look there, Miss Anderson? She, she led me here. She spoke in my head. I don't understand it, but it happened. You're psychic, aren't you? Did you know that already? Not until I came to this school. You saw her on the day of your interview, didn't you? Yes, on the stairs. I remember, and I fobbed you off with a practical explanation. Did you ever see her, Miss Leonard? No, but Mr. Brown did more than once, and one of the children last term after the fire insisted that Miss Carey wasn't dead as she'd seen her in the corridor. Neither of them was lying. Some individuals see and hear more than others. Have you been very frightened? At first I wasn't, because I thought she was real. Later, I did feel frightened. And now? Now. I just feel desperately sorry for her. Her eyes, Miss Leonard. 
you could have seen the sadness in her eyes. Mr. Brown mentioned that. You may talk to him if you like, but please no talk of ghosts to anyone else. Of course not. Anyway, I think she'll go away now. She'll be free of the place. She's been punished so dreadfully. Maybe ghosts are people in purgatory, and we see them around us all the time without realising that they're ghosts. Maybe you do, said Miss Leonard, smiling a little. The bell rang for the beginning of the afternoon school. A wail of disappointment rose from outside. I looked out of the window, saw the children cease their snowballing and move obediently towards the building. Only one figure moved away from the building, moved through the oncoming crowd of girls who took no notice of her at all. She walked farther away, on and on, past the playground, across the snow-covered playing field. A pale sun was shining, and the snow dazzled, accentuating the thin, dark outline of the woman in black. She looked so utterly alone. Then a small figure began to follow her, running quickly and eagerly, and the sun turned the little figure's mop of red curls into a flame shaped like a rose. The child overtook the woman in black and walked beside her, lightly, dancingly, and the two retreating figures cast no shadows on the snow and left no footprints. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so come back, don't Isn't that Everybody so? Back, you tried to get into the Isn't locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried How to do the dead come back, that was The Mistress in Black by Rosemary Timperley. Let me tell you something about her life. First of all, we should say I've done a couple of Rosemary Timperley stories before. Did The Christmas Meeting, which is a very short story, but very poignant. And then we did Harry, which is, um, again, a tragic story about child death. Um, I don't know enough about her work, and I've never read any of her novels to know whether this is a, a repeated theme. But let us say something about her first. So, Rosemary Timperley was born in 1920 in Crouch End, North London, and died in November 1988, I think in Richmond, um, southwest London as it is now, or Surrey. Her father was an architect and her mother a teacher. Mm. Timperley went to her local girls' school at Hornsey and, um, and then became a teacher herself. She taught English and history in a state school. Her pupils said that she was a very dramatic figure. She ran the drama club. English teachers often do, mine did as well. And it said that Timperley wore long, swirling black dresses with long drop or hoop earrings. Over 33 years of writing, she published 66 novels and several hundred short stories. However, her ghost stories are the, the ones that people remember best and most. She also put together a couple of anthologies of ghost stories and was the editor of uh, the Pan Ghost book, particularly the fifth one that came out. I've got 71, but another source says 69. And this is this where The Mysteries in Black appears. So it was published in 1969. Many of her short stories, award-winning short stories, were published in The New Yorker, Harper's Bazaar, and The Atlantic Monthly. Timberley, Timberley's work often dealt with the supernatural and paranormal themes, and she was considered a master of the ghost story genre. She also wrote several non-fiction books and articles on subjects such as writing and the supernatural. Timperley passed away in 1988, aged 68. 
And when she was a teacher, working as a teacher, she began to submit her stories to a magazine. And they began to be accepted. She became a staff writer and an agony aunt on the magazine Ravelli. She lived in Richmond, Surrey, we knew, a well-heeled suburb of London now for many years. Many of her stories are set in London. During the Second World War, she worked at the Citizens Advice Bureau in Kensington in London. She got married to a physics teacher in 1952 and they lived in Essex to the east side of London. Um, but they separated in the early 60s, according to some sources. She was a very private person and this has been picked together by looking at different... There are, there are one or two little notes about her biography and I'm, I'm very um, uh, grateful to them for the information. Um, they separated in the early 60s, but they uh, were married, so they were living separately until he died in 68, and she had another 20 years. Timpley managed to travel widely across the world despite her hectic writing schedule, visiting Italy, a number of her works are set in Venice, Morocco, Belgium, Russia and Greece. Timpley's publisher, Robert Hale, stated that her first-hand knowledge of other nations and diversified work experience she had lots of jobs in spite of novels, plays and short tales. Indeed, Timpley is believed to have worked as a waitress, a counter-assistant in a police canteen, a typewriter and an artist's model. She's quite pretty, actually, when you look at the pictures. Um, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, it's true. Oh, before she became a freelance writer... In 64, I think, she was hospitalised in a Surrey hospital because she lived in Richmond, Surrey. Uh, and then she became a nurse there. Uh, uh, she went to work as an auxiliary nurse, which is like a non-qualified nurse. We call them healthcare assistants now, but it's what they were. My mother, who was a qualified nurse, was a bit sniffy about that. But um, Sheila is one, is an auxiliary nurse, So who I live with. So there we are. Yeah, the salt of the earth and made my life much easier. In so actually, I had my life saved by one. Uh, um, this woman came out at me with a kitchen knife and I was with a, an auxiliary nurse, healthcare assistant at the time. We were out in the community and she knew jujitsu, I kid you not. And she um, she disarmed this woman who otherwise would have, could have probably gutted me. So I'm extreme. that was Sandra. I'm very grateful to Sandra for saving my life. Funnily enough, we called the police as this woman was getting agitated. We're in the house. They didn't come. And eventually they sent the cop around. And I said, this woman's just attacked me with a knife. And he's like, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was playing it down. And then she picked the hoover up, the vacuum cleaner, and whacked him on the head with it, at which point he called for backup. And they, they arrested her. But this was always the way. I'm, I'm got a little bit of a chip on my shoulder here. We always used to, as mental health nurses, it's part of our job to get punched. That was seemed to be the attitude of law enforcement. Well, you know, that's what you do for a living, get punched. But as soon as the same patient whacked a copper, goodness me, loads of cop vans and arrests and restraints and tasers appeared. But, it, but while they were just punching us, nobody really cared. Uh, and they always get done for police assault if they punch a cop. If they punch a nurse, it's like, well... I've had, when I was working in safeguarding at a general hospital, um, this guy had a young 20-year-old nurse up by the throat. This was on a night shift. And honestly, no action was taken against him. So, um, yeah, sorry, I'll get back to the story. So as she um, got older, she's, in 61 she mentioned she's living in an old-fashioned flat and living on coffee, pink gin and cigarettes. You get that from the picture here, don't you? In 1964, but she became seriously ill. This is when she went to hospital. Well, with a diet like that, what do you expect? And then she lived a quite reclusive life until her death. And she's still writing in 1988. And despite her success in previous years, went unremarked upon her death by the press. And no obituary was ever written. It's not a shame. 
She's a very, very interesting woman. I have some fellow feeling with her because I've had loads of jobs as well. I was a teacher for a year. I decided after living in London for about eight years, I needed to leave. And I thought, I'll tell you what, I'll be a teacher. So I, I got my teaching certificate because in those days, probably still true, you have a thing called a PGCE, Postgraduate Certificate of Education. So I, um, I'd only got a bachelor's degree. So that allowed me to teach. So I went into this school and I liked the place. I liked my colleagues. I liked the kids mostly, but I spent all my time shouting at them. And I, I went in and I hadn't been, I was a Welsh teacher teaching Welsh. I was trained as a primary teacher, but I ended up with a job in a secondary school because they were desperate for Welsh teachers. And I went in, and the head of the department was um, um, David. I won't mention his second name, or the school, was writing a novel, so he was absolutely uninterested in anything. Genial fellow, though. And he just said, oh, you'll be all right. I said, I've never been trained for this. He said, there's some, there's some textbooks in the cupboard. And there's where we used to have the, the National Curriculum Manual. So he said, it's just there, read that and do it. And then, um, my, then he left, and I was there, and it was awful, awful, awful. Uh, as I said, it was very, very stressful. And now my daughter's a teacher. Well, both of them are. One is an art technician, so she has the best part of it. Doesn't get paid as much, but does lots of potting and painting and helping kids these days with computer programs, art programs. And the other one is a primary teacher, and I think she's going to make herself ill with overwork. But... Um, but there we are. That's just my little worries. My little Imogen is the art teacher and Catherine is the uh, um, primary teacher working their socks off for the children of this nation. Yes, indeed. Anyway, there we are. So what about the story? Well, it's a nice story, isn't it? You know, it is. It, you can tell she knows what she's doing. So the, but funnily enough, the, so the story we can, even from the, the setup is nice, but we see the woman on the stairs. We know. Because remember, we know it's a ghost story. We've already, we've already, you've listened to the classic ghost stories podcast. And while they're not all ghost stories, they're 98% of them are. And uh, the supernatural stories anyway. And anybody picking up the fifth pan ghost books, a bit of a hint from the, from the title. So this is a ghost story. We see the woman in black. Aren't they always women in black? You know, I did do Susan Hill's story for members. So if you just wanted to become a member, you'd get access to that. Just say it. Um, you can become a member of the YouTube channel if you're listening on YouTube. If not, Substack or Patreon. They're not the same, though. There's three separate channels. Anyway, let's not get into that. I've put up a library you may find on GhostPod, www.ghostpod.org, not com, because there's somebody else that's got that. It's not me. So ghostpod.org. I've put a library up of 160 stories from the podcast over the past three and a bit years that you can download for freezer that you just go onto that website you'll see on the on the menu free ghost stories just be my guest all i ask you as a call to action is just spread the word just let everybody know and we can grow 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 and then there's one person said to me why and i was like oh i don't know really um, because growing is good, growth is good, you know, is it? Well, I think it is. It's maybe a vanity metric. But anyway, so that I, I don't want to get too deeply psychoanalytical into why I want to grow. Um, it'd be something to do with my mother, probably, or my dad. It always is, isn't it? Um, but oh my grand, ah, who knows? All, all of whom were charming people who, who um, 
I have very, very positive regard for. So I don't think there's anything wrong. Anyway, goodness, where am I going with this? So, uh, yes, yeah, so just go to GhostPod, download the stories, spread the word. So back to the mistress in black, you know, uh, the woman in black. Yes, she's a mistress, not in the sense, but she's a mistress in two senses, isn't she? And that's probably the play on the word. She's not just the teacher in black because she was the mistress of this bloke, this, what shall we call him? This faithless dog. And he, um, he discarded her like a rag and it broke her heart. That's why she got sad eyes. And so then, so, so much so, she's driven into a depression. She actually kills herself. But obviously she's, um, the, and I think what is interesting is it's not just a, a it's not, it's a, it's a, an ennui. It's a, no, it's more than that. It's an against a hatred of the world. The world has wronged her. So, the, so viciously it should be destroyed. Um, you see that in children, of course, that, oh, I'm getting old. I'm having a psychoanalytical day today, aren't I? So what happens is um, that the child whose wants are not met by the parent has a, um, both desperately wants the love of the parent but hates and wants to destroy the parent. And then, as Melanie Klein would tell you, fears the retribution Fears two things. Fears the loss of the love object by destroying it. And also, I don't know if Klein said this, I think she might have done, is fears that the, the, the love object, the, the one that you try and destroy, will hit you back. So anyway, in a sense, this is what Tim, um, the mistress in black's doing. The mistress is both... I, I hope you know that... Um, I don't know if that's just a Britishism, but um, school a schoolmistress is a school teacher. Uh, we call them teachers now. Apart from in the in the public schools, which are the private schools, where they're masters and mistresses still, but um, I think in the state schools we've um, adopted American usage of the word teacher, which is fine. That's what I was brought up with, so I'm okay about that. But she's a, the the other meaning of mistress, of course. I think I'm over-egging this. Is that um, she was the uh, she was an adulteress? She was the mistress of the bad man. We don't know who he was, but he was a bad man. I wonder. You wonder whether this was from her own experience, but. Things don't have to be from a writer's own experience because writers are very good at kind of stealing bits and bobs from everything they come across and with no actual deeper meaning other than they think it'll fit in a story. Or is there a deeper meaning? Discuss. And why by fire? And why the gymnasium? And why the curtain? Surely is it because they're the most combustible, easily combustible things, those long curtains? Could be just a practical reason. It could be symbolic but if it is symbolic, I can't think of just right now what it's symbolic of. Uh, and then, of course, she didn't. She was blamed for the loss of the little girl, but Joan, but she didn't. And then she makes, there's actually some really interesting period things here. So this is probably, you know, from the 50s, possibly. It was published in 69, so it could have been 60. But when I was a teacher in the early 90s, before my girls were born, um, we certainly didn't have a lady coming in with overalls, bringing us teas and coffees. We had to make our own. But otherwise, there was the common room where you did, everybody did gather, and it was a place of relaxation. I used to say, being a teacher is from, from the, pretty much as soon as you get in, you're in contact with the enemy. And, uh, you know, whereas that isn't true for most jobs, most jobs you, you're with your colleagues primarily and occasionally you face out towards your customers if children our customers. There's a great thing on TikTok about teaching, so, you know, so, okay, I'm not going to pay very much for this, but I want you to teach kids maths. And the putative teacher goes, well, do they want to learn maths? No. 
oh, okay. And who are these kids? They're just random kids from who just happen to live near the school. You know, wow. Yeah, it's true. But English, English was my favourite subject, as you can probably guess when I was at school. Um, yeah, so the period pieces. So there's a lady comes in with a tea. No, they're all smoking. They have electric fires, which two things I think you don't now. Um, and they, she refers to unnatural, what's it? Unnatural vices or unnatural affections or something like that. Mm. This this is celebrated then. This story probably is a queer story, isn't it? Technically. Um, although I don't know if it's ever been celebrated. It's probably not well enough known. Uh, is it? Is it? Yeah, I suppose, because it's this... And we, present, we call her a little girl, but she's going to the cinema, so she's a teenager. Again... Rocky Rocky Roads. This this is walking on thin ice. I don't want to actually, I'm not, you know. Come on, uh, it's just a story, right? Okay. I've done all my um, calls to action. Hope you're well. It's sunny here, but frosty, which is good. I went for a walk yesterday. Down there's a great place. There's a a lane near me that's called Johnny Bulldog's Lonning. So we we use the word in our dialect, Lonning. For a le- I think they do in the northeast as well, um, and po- po- possibly in other parts of Lone. I think they say elsewhere, but Lane it is, isn't it? So Johnny Bull, whoever Johnny Bulldog, and then there's Engine Loning as well. There's loads of great names. Anyway, this uh, had been. It's not too far from the river, and it had flooded, and it was frozen. So I thought, mm, can I get across this? I needed some skates, and I was slippy, 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 and then it went deep and I thought oh I'm gonna have to walk all the way back around but it was a lovely day and I noticed on the river um I thought I saw a shell duck but it wasn't it, it was a, a, a I didn't my glasses on or any binoculars so it was a male goosander and there were quite a lot of goosanders and I saw a pair of poachers as well but um the goosanders on the river all year and mainly mallards but uh, I remember there used to be a lot more birds around there was a guy um lopping the boughs off um, willow trees with his chainsaw and letting them float down the river. And I thought a couple of things. I thought, as I walked, he didn't hear me because he had a helmet on and ear defenders. And I thought, I don't want to upset him because he's got a chainsaw and all I've got is an empty cup of coffee, which I got from the bloke. It has the van by the golf club. I don't know if you know it. Nice fella. And um, it was Americano with a bit of milk. And anyway, I walk, I'd finished it by this time. So all I had was an empty coffee cup, which I carried around with me looking for a bin which eventually found after about six miles. I exaggerate, three miles. And um, there's this guy chopping bits of willow trees, and I thought two things. I thought, in the old days, we would have used those. Our ancestors would have made some use of that willow and probably still do in other parts of the world. He was just letting it float down the river. I thought, is that going to clog anywhere up? That was a minor thought. And I thought, what are you doing this for? Because you don't want to be killing the trees because they hold the bank together if you do. You, you're going to lose your field and your golf course um, as the river eats into it. But then I thought, well, they know more about this than me. Maybe it's, maybe it's actually pollarding to make the trees stronger. I, I don't know. That's giving, that's giving them uh, foresight, isn't it, that they know what they're doing. In the summer, we came across another bloke um, with weed killer who was killing giant hogweeds. And he says, don't go down. And when the giant hogweed, you don't want to touch it anyway. It's really poisonous. It can give you nasty, irritated rash. And then the weed killer's probably not very nice. And that was just kind of running in the river, I would imagine. Um, anyway, enough of that. 
there are wiser people out there than me that know many, many things. And so I, I decided this morning I'm not going to get agitated or irated about things. I'm just going to accept things as they come. The world is a mysterious and wonderful place. Um, and I hope you're having a wonderful time. A nice little way to finish off. Okay, speak to you soon. Bye. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big a backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron you can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts and on youtube but if you want to become a patron you get the double whammy of supporting my work which enables me to do more work imagine that you pay me to do more and i do more work for you and produce more stories for you which is and, and you know i appreciate it so you get my love and gratitude and also you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.